Remember the first time you saw a race car on an open trailer? Maybe it was full of dirt, tire marks, and other battle scars. You wondered where it had been, and more importantly, where it was going next. Every open trailer has a story, and we're here to tell it. Welcome to the Open Trailer Podcast. All I can say is, buckle up, we have Pete Silva in the house. My name's Andy Austin, the host of Open Trailer Podcast, and today, yes, we dig into the first of two stages with Pete Silva. We cover his early days, in fact, some of his first racing memories, where the idea for the X-Car came from, the time that he first met up with Junior Johnson, Banjo Matthews, and other legends of the South, and oh yes, we'll get to the Bob Presley story. First, though, this podcast does directly benefit Maine Vintage Race Car Association. We hope you're a member. If not, just to let you know, we preserve the history of racing here in the state of Maine. There are a few ways you can support our mission. First, by becoming a member for less than $2 a month. Racing is a family sport. You can get a family membership and also multi-year memberships. All that information is at MainVintageRace.org. That's MainVintageRace.org. You can directly support this podcast by going to Patreon.com slash OpenTrailerPodcast. Now the money raised goes directly into the production and equipment to make this possible. Again, that's Patreon.com slash OpenTrailerPodcast. When the idea for Open Trailer Podcast first came about, this was the guy. So many people lined up and said, hey, you getting Pete Silva? Yes, we are. Enjoy. When when we talked about this in Main Vintage that we were going to do this do this podcast, I would say that everybody that knew about it before it was public said you got to get Pete Silva on there. <laughs> I'm not sure why, but I appreciate them thinking that way. Yeah. Um. So I want to I want to start at the beginning. Uh, you, you grew up in a racing family. Yes. What was it like growing up with, with your dad? Well, it was early. I, I was born in 48. The year Unity actually opened. I guess it opened officially in 49, but they ran a few races in 48. And my father, he didn't race a long time, but he was he set a standard the time, short time that he did race. So I was going to Unity when I was in single digits. Uh, I can remember going there and being dropped off at the bleachers and I sat with who went later became Sandy Davo and a few other people that we all knew. Wow. I was probably eight years old. I wasn't even in double figures. Do you remember the first time you were at a racetrack? At a racetrack? Yeah. Well, it was it would be Unity. I ended up going to Exeter a lot because he ended up racing there in Waterville, Oakland. But it would be Unity. And I can remember he ran an he won an extra distance race very long race for the times it seems like it was a 75 or 100 lap race which really wasn't the norm back then half mile dirt at the time now that you look back on it it, it, you've gained another perspective of the past it was like wow several cars it was nothing to start 30 or 40 cars back then and what I remember he led most of the race and did did he teach you how to drive just just drive a car or well obviously he taught me how to drive on the road it was not a lot of uh took a long time they weren't too excited about me wanting to race really obviously with your fathers in the racing and we grew up in a car era so it's always cars 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 and it was no there wasn't a lot of encouragement there was conversation as i got older 
and it looked like I was going to do it. Kind of mind-boggling. I think about it often. He said several things when I was a teenager that I just said, "He, what is he talking about? He's got to be crazy. That can't be right. You mean as far as setup or? Well, how you feel, how you analyze. He talked to me a lot about analyzing other people and studying the people you raced against, which really? was a great lesson, by the way. And this is off-the-track stuff. This is when yeah, you're in the I'm pits? I'm a teenager. You're talking in the 50s. Hmm. You know, probably early 60s, maybe. And and uh, I didn't believe any of it. Do you remember any of the instruction or tidbits? Well, he just taught me about studying and, and, and understanding the other guy's habits during a race. And, 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 and no, you basically getting into the other guy's mind and knowing what he's thinking all the time so you can anticipate what he's going to do when you get to him and try to do something with him. It was just, it was extraordinary now that I think back at it, but I can remember, and I've had these conversations a lot recently, there were multiple things in that I, as I said earlier, I didn't really, I'm not saying I didn't believe, but I didn't think were exactly right. One was sitting on the straightaway at Charlotte after the national anthem and in Martinsville. And what he had told me hit me. It couldn't have been any more accurate. Really? It just hit me between the eyes. And not exactly the place to be when your eyes are misting over, by the way, with an emotional <laughs> memory of, of your father. Right. But he was, he was just really strong. He was, he was very – he was a dominator. He's in the Hall of Fame. And, and, yes. And, and as time went along, we spent a lot of time at my grandmother's and, and uh, when he didn't have a ride. We'd be sitting around on Sunday afternoon. Back then, they raced a lot on Sundays. And, and, and the phone would ring, and it would be somebody – with a ride and we'd hop in the car and head to the racetrack and he'd drop me off at the bleachers win the race and we'd come home and I just thought that was a normal would it be different teams yeah oh yeah really he just uh, so he didn't race with the same guy all the time no they you know they had their own team for a long time the X-Car that group hmm. and uh but no people would know he didn't have a ride and they'd come to the racetrack and call him and uh I have to say it I tell this to people I thought well there's nothing to that you know <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, you just sit by the phone on a Sunday and wait well, for the phone to ring. <laughs> but you get in your own car right. with your own people, your own setup, what you're used to, and you're just used to it. Hmm. And so when I went down to, especially the second time I went back to the Carolinas in 93, I drove for several teams. And, and it didn't take long to realize that thing my father was doing was nowhere as near as easy as he made it look. Because right. everybody had their own ideas, their own setups. So... All these cars were fast. I was very fortunate. But nothing felt the same. Nothing was always familiar. What did he do when he wasn't racing? What was his trade? Well, he worked. He, he drove heavy equipment, great heavy equipment. When I was in high school, we had a bar room where all the college kids hung around. What did you, uh, what did you excel at in school? Oh, God. Probably until high school. I, you know, I played sports, football, basketball. What position? I was... Uh, like a halfback and playing football, you know, and when I first started as a freshman in JV, I did a little quarterback and I really wasn't much there. And I played defense a little bit, didn't do bad there. Mm -hmm. Did anything give you the charge that racing did? Were you racing at this point? No. No? No. I, uh, when I was in high school towards the end, some friends of my, another guy and myself built a 55 Chevy. We were too young to drive it. Nobody was going to sign any permit stuff. So, What year was this about? 62? Uh, before 65, 63, 4, 5. I think it had just, whenever Unity got asphalted the first year,
Albert Robinson drove a couple races for us. You remember that name? Mm-hmm. Harold Burgess drove a few races for us. Then I got away from it for a while. I moved to Sugarloaf. Why? Well, there was a lot of work going on up there and just wanted to change the scenery, myself and a couple of friends. And uh, Dead we- River Company was up there trying to make that a, a year-round destination. Built Flagstaff Lake, Reddington North, Reddington South, put an airport in. So it wasn't that you were a skier. This is before no, I the- did ski. I worked yeah. for K2 Ski Company for a while also. Wow. Yeah. But at that point, then I ended up bartending business at the Red Stallion Inn. And then I went to uh, Stratton Rogers Motel and ran both of those bars. I don't know if I was even quite... Were you old enough to drink? Barely? Well, barely. <laughs> it's as Red Stallion I wasn't. At Rogers Motel, I probably had to be to run the bars. What kind of characters would you run into managing multiple bars in the 60s? The, the, Red, the Red Stallion were a lot of skiers from out of state that era. Mm-hmm. It was pretty cool, you know, rustic old. Now, Rogers Motel. Oh, boy. Dead River was hiring all the people from Farmington and all the, wood, all the people that worked in the woods because they were, they, were, they were cutting lots out of the sides of the mountain to put these high-dollar homes in for, like, Heffenreffer beer, the Chuck Wagon restaurant change. So you had those guys. You had all the Canadians they hired to come in. And it was the 60s. You had all the skiers and hippies coming in from Colorado. So by midnight on a weekend at Rogers Motel made Miss Kitty's saloon look tame. (laughs) Trust me. Wow. It was wild. Yeah. So then I came back home. They wanted to send me to school to learn how to manage hotels. And I, I had a better idea. I thought racing would be a better career. Really? So I moved back to Waterville and tried to get going and went to work for Peter Weber, K2 Ski Company, mm-hmm. and was built my first Chevelle then. But that job was fun. We worked in town through Thursday, and every Thursday we'd load 150 pairs of skis up in a K2 van and head through New England, Sugarbush, Saddleback, wherever there was a ski area. The base lodge set the skis out for people to to try, trying to, you know, promotion. Mm. Yeah. And drink a lot of wine. Did you ski throughout your life? I skied a little bit. I wasn't. Do you still I, ski? No, I haven't no. in years. But I, we had a ski slope right in town, Colby Ski Slope, hmm. that we'd go to during the week. What's the best place in Maine to ski? Well, I, I basically went there, and uh, I might have gone to Saddleback once, but I spent a lot of time around Sugarloaf. I was way over my head, you know. I got a. They let us take skis from K two, and I said, "Well, give me a pair of racing skis." Yeah, <laughs> take me to the top. Right, you know, that, kind of a racing man Oh, of course, yeah. Because I felt like I was standing over a ledge when I looked down, but right. I made it. Wow. Do you ever you ever get hurt skiing? No, no, no. It's you know I got so I could go pretty good, but it, it was very demeaning to, to think you're doing great and you're barely doing anything, and some five year old goes by you like he's an Olympian. So I haven't seen any pictures of you at this time. Do you have the long hair? What do you look like at this point? Oh yes. Yeah. yeah, like I just came back from Woodstock, or I'm auditioning for Duck Dynasty. That would be like it. Willie Nelson? Willie Nelson We're looking style. at the cover of yeah, Willie Nelson's Greatest Hits. Yes. Um, so, yeah, so you start racing in 1970. Yes. What number were you at this point? X. So the, the X car came from your dad. Yes, 19. I, I found this old family album with a picture missing in it. And that's, back in those old albums, used to have the little stickers that held the squares, the corners of the picture. And I found some old pictures, and, and it's and, and next to that empty picture was the very 1951, the very first X car in the bank off the third turn at Unity. 
And I go through these loose pictures, and there's the X car off the bank at Unity, and it fit into that little mm. deal perfectly. So, yes. So where did that come from? Like, why did your dad pick X? Uh, you know something? I have no idea. He, he had a couple cars before then, number 88, a 36 Ford three-window coupe. Right. And the next thing I knew, there was an X. I've always been fascinated with that, and that is the number one question that um, that people want to know. At least when they when they hear that Pete Silva is going to be on the um, on the Open Trailer podcast, they're like, ask him about the X car because I don't know. He, he he had it back then, like I said, nineteen fifty one, and and it was just some, they just wanted to do something different, like X marks the spot type mentality, just. There's a guy, I don't know if you know that uh, a current driver, Adam Lovejoy, has done a similar thing where his his label is X and he races at Star Speedway and some other racetracks around here. If I'm eight years old and I'm at a racetrack for the first time and I see a bunch of different numbers and I'm like, that car looks cool, but if I see a big X on the side of a car, I'm instantly just drawn in. If you get on a computer, I'm on a hundred and something vintage sites, it seems yes. like. Yeah. I was flabbergasted at how many X cars there are, especially throughout New England in history. Hmm. So, you know, I always try to go back and say, I wonder how old that car is. I wonder who had it first. And I'm not sure if we must have been in on the ground floor or pretty close to it in 1951. So you guys uh, influenced a, a ton of different X cars. How about uh, the fan base at Unity when you first started this X car? Did they gravitate towards that car? It, when I started, I was probably the first one there with the long hair and the beard. And you stuck out. And yes, and it wasn't probably in a great way. And half of my crew was the same way. Yeah. And you know, like a lot of people, probably in the way more than not. And, so you uh, didn't have a lot of success right away. Well, I, I didn't. I, in 1970, I drove for a longtime family friend Lloyd Corson. He's passed away in a '57 Chevy. I ran six races. So-so car. I really wasn't competitive. At the end of the year, there was a hundred lapper, and I ran six. We got better, just not great. And the following year, I didn't race. And with a month to go, we had completed a 64 Chevelle. And Brad Joseph and I were friends, and he ran a Chevelle. And he gave me what he put under his car, which obviously I was really hurting and set up knowledge. And uh, when my father raced, it was back in the old coops with, you know, Buggy Springs, so there really wasn't any assistance there. We showed up. We won the heat race. We won the semi-feature and led the feature until we tangled with the lap car. So that's like my seventh race, eighth race. Mm. We came back the next week and ran side-by-side with Bobby Merrill, who was the reigning champion for about 30 laps and won the race. And what uh, what role is your dad at this point? Is he helping you out? Is he helping you size other drivers up again? Well, it, yeah. It, you know, he... We were we butted head a lot, mm. you know. He had his own way, and I had mine, and I don't think that's to be unexpected. I was gonna say, what is your way, though? We've learned about his methodical. Well, I was just, I was. He said, "Well, you need more of this. You need more of that." I mean, he was a big motor guy and a big gear guy. You yeah, know, yeah. By the time we get here, there's a few more rules. Hmm. You know, I mean, it did. I don't think rules really factored into his thinking when he was <laughs> right. It was about advantage and being the fastest. Yeah, and uh, ingenuity too. Yes, you know, you could really. He had good people around him. He had uh, good sponsors for the times. Uh, Maine's best lobster pound. I don't know if you ever remember hearing that in Waterville, Maine, but it was big for years. A place called White House Appliance, which was the predecessor to Sears and Roebuck. Hmm. He had a lot of things going. On. He had some good motor people. 
What kind of money is going around at this point, too, as far as sponsorship money for a top team uh, like that? There was none. I, I think my first sponsor on that car, I think Loma Pelletier, who's in the mm. Hall of Fame, donated parts. No kidding. Uh, Lloyd Corson, it was his garage. His, he donated a motor and paid for the rings and barons, and his son rebuilt it. And uh, Dickie Dow, who's passed away, an old burner business. He worked at Kai's Fiber, but he did old burns work on the side, gave us $250. How did things go throughout the 70s at Unity? Well, they got rolling pretty good. Like I said, we we won that race. I got to tell you this story. We we thought we were ready for more, you know. Mm. Get that Bob, taste. Uh, uh, yes. And it was illusionary, believe me. Mm. Bob Bear's having to get he open, so we think we're ready for this. So we haul down there on a Sunday afternoon and sign in Pete Silva. Man, they roll out the red carpet. I, I, it was insane. It was really? royalty treatment. Yes. Wow. I said, wow, man, what'll ever happen if I win two races? About 15 <laughs> minutes later, they realized I wasn't Ollie Silva. Oh! <laughs> it was over. It was over. When you go south, and we're, we're hopping around a little bit, did anybody think that you were related to Ronnie Silver? You get that a lot, even though it's a completely different name, completely no, different spelling? No, he's a good spelling. friend of mine. No, uh, the Ollie Silver deal always comes up. Yeah. Always. And, and uh, you know something? I don't know if I'm related to him. I always say no, but he's from an era where, area where my father's father was from Massachusetts, mm. that area, and, and uh, it could be a tremendous amount of silvers down there. Oh, my goodness, yes. So you do go south, and this is something that, I mean, as far as Maine people going south, it was what, Pete Hamilton, maybe? Hamilton went down. Obviously, Stan went down yeah. for a season, and I think uh, Harold Wilcox dabbled. A lot of people made the annual trips. Dick McCabe from around here. I don't know, and I think Ralph, when he had his dot, made a trip or two. And Louis Stewart used to haul a car down there. Maine people, people in the Northeast, I don't want to say they race differently, but their mentality was different because you know we had jobs during the day. But- and the southern drivers were different. And I'll tell you a story about that here in a minute, mm. going back to asking about the south. Mm. I learned that the hard way. Why did you go south? What originally made you go there? So, you ask about unity and success. Mm. We got those Chevelles going pretty good and won some races in the next couple of years. Did you ever do the 250 early on? Not at that point. I no. think I'd gone down, but I don't think I had much luck. But we picked up the Budweiser deal, and our production picked up. Big time. How did that come together? We were struggling along, running pretty decent. You know, it wasn't we weren't dominating, but we were probably as good as anybody else that was winning. And, and uh, I ran into somebody who said, "You know, the Budweiser guy's taking an interest in all this racing." And, and my father had a bar room at one time, and he was friends with my father's. And he says, he "says You ought to go talk to him." And went to talk to him. And, and I'm from Rogers Hotel. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the Valley Distributors. Bucky yes. runs. Uh, I think it was $1,500, so we went out and just bought new cylinder heads and all kinds of stuff, and uh, for us, it was a big deal. There was more money around on other teams, but and we went on a run, you know? Hmm. Then it got to be a little more the next year. Was it initially Budweiser, and then you moved to Bush, or? Yes, and I'll explain that as you're going along. So we do this for two years, and uh, I think we won something like 24 out of 32 races or something. And And unity. uh, Yeah. Then he goes and and he, we buy a used Laughlin car, an old Beaver Dragon car, and we're going to go dabble with that. And we're struggling along, and we had a couple of decent runs, and we blo- motor brakes. 
I know what the deal was. My my poor motor builder was. We kept changing motors from Saturday to Sunday, cylinder heads or whatever, to go from regular racing to open comp racing. And he goes to Banjo Matthews and buys a motor. And we fly to North Carolina, get off a plane at night, and we drive to Junior Johnson's on Monday morning. Now, Junior Johnson is the t- – it's like going to Joe Gibbs Racing at this and, point. And we're going to go back to a question you asked me earlier. How did I look at that time? Oh, so you're some hippie from the north. Some hippie from the north. Yeah. So we go down in a hollow to Wilkesboro. And, and you show up at Junior Johnson's. You've got those, they're old garages, add-on garages, nothing like today's Taj Mahal's. Right. And all the holly, all the chicken chickens full bore, you can hear them clacking away. You know, uh, the Holly Farms deal, that was all producing for them. Mm-hmm. Finally comes walking out of the house, a truck, old truck and trailer sitting there. They just come back, they'd won the uh, Music City 420 in Nashville, the car was still in the trailer. What year was this? 79. 79. And he says, he comes out just like you saw him on Pitt Road. The white T-shirt and like the painter's coveralls mm-hmm. pulling on his nose just like he did on TV. <laughs> and he says, come on into the office. We're going to this little office. And he said, can I help you? Very cordial, just like he'd known us forever. And I'm way over my head. Yeah, this and is, I just wow. said, well, we're from here and here and back in Maine. And uh, I'd like to buy a motor from you just stepped in it as big why as I, not yeah stepped in it as big as i could you know hmm. and he uh he, he just stares at me for about 20 <laughs> seconds you know and i said oh jesus here we go doesn't say a thing no just looks at me wow and uh he says you know i'll build you a motor but it won't do you any good he said my stuff is so heavy it lasts you five years he said but i'm on my way to banjo matthews to pick up a car kale wrecked and we need it for dover this week jump in the truck with me what jump in this pickup truck and we head out so you're from maine you fly down into junior johnson's neck of the woods into the belly of the beast That's exactly right and then he says we're going to see banjo Matthews." yes jump in the red pickup david hamlin's with me that helped sponsor me and bucky runson from Valley Distributors and they follow us. They have no idea who you are. They, you mean... Junior Johnson. No. No. That was, this all happens in 15 minutes. Wow. And I'm in a truck with him riding the banjos another hundred and something miles down down the road. Wow. And you're, you're you, so you have, you're, you're not the Southerner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Probably waiting for me to do something foolish there. Right. But, yeah. And, uh, so we drive and we pull into banjos and he comes out and introduces us as friends and he said, I want to, you need to build these guys a motor. And Banjo, you know, my friends, wink, wink. And uh, Banjo says, well, this is what I'll do. And Junior says, this is how I'd like it done. And he said, when do you need it for? And I said, I need it in 12 days. And he said, never happened. We flew back down in 10 days, and it was on a dyno. Wow. So when I do interviews, and, I, you know, I've done that show out of Virginia and a few others, they, they ask me about the people I've met in, North Carolina, how it went. And I said, well, I kind of started on the top of the mountain and worked my way down. (laughs) (laughs) Going back to the reason how I ended up down there, we got this motor and it really propelled us. We went to Stafford and and basically were leaving that place and uh, had a fender loosen up and got blood. We were rookies now on a North tour. Oh, this is the uh, precursor to ACT, basically NASCAR North tour. Yeah, when it was, yes. Okay. And we we finished third in a hundred lapper. I think finished behind Bobby and Beaver Dragon. 
went to Stafford and drove by Mike Berry and was pulling away. This was after getting the banjo motor. And we, by then we were in Dick McCabe's old Nova. We had a problem and got black flagged. Then we went to Dumont Tang and had a shot at winning the race and got tangled with a lap car. So the season ends. And Bucky Runso, without even talking to me or any of us, and he didn't have to, we called banjos and ordered a brand new Grand Am and another motor. A 311 cubic inch motor, which was going to become the craze. Hmm. And bring them back. Got our motor freshened up. Had another car. Got hooked up with Ron Barkham in Vermont. We moved to Milton, Vermont. And took Barkham on as a teammate. And ran a few races. And got crashed. uh, St. Air, the short track. And took the car back to Banjos to get repaired. We called him and said, yeah, just bring it back. We'll repair it right off. Well, it was World 600 week down there at Charlotte and David Pearson was driving the house car for banjo so being a no-name Yankee I got shuffled so far back in the building there I don't even know if there was electricity (laughs) but two weeks later it's so I'm there for two weeks doing whatever you know out visiting whatever racing stuff I can visit and hanging around every night with the crew from banjos so the car gets finished on a Friday two weeks later and it's too late to go home how are you received by the other shop workers well it wasn't bad they were kind of young and we'd all go out at night and drink beers together every night so it was like by the time the car's done we're friends so does your sponsorship involve uh, you know free products oh yes so that probably helped things out too well up here it did yeah it's but anyways now it's too late to go back so they're trying to tell talk me into uh Racing in North Carolina, something that never was part of the spectrum. Right. And so we take the car out of Banjo's KLB race cars, who was the foreman of Banjo's, put a motor in it and set it up. And I can remember asking Banjo, he said, what are you going to do? I said, oh, I'm going to try to race around here this weekend. I said, Banjo, I said, I've never time trialed in my life. What do I do? Back to the Junior Johnson staring deal. Hmm. So there's the next biggest name in history to me mm-hmm. just staring at me after I asked the question he says well when you leave the pit hold it wide open until you come back <laughs> he turned around and walked away <laughs> just laughed <laughs> okay oh man my word so the the NASCAR North years um, looking at some of the results here and sure enough San Air the short track um, crashed you remember that one. Yeah. But, I mean, you, other finishes were 5th, 6th, 8th. You, you were running good. You're also running the X car. Tom Curley's involved. Ken Squire's involved. Two of the best promoters, uh, you know, in this area that, that I can think of in the past, you know, 50, 60 years. Do they say anything about this X car? Or does, do they play it up? Well, a little bit. A few of the writers on Speedway Scene did. And they had a – when we got went to the Spring Green – Another race we had a shot at winning, and I had a problem. I think Mike Berry ended up winning it. He and I kind of checked out. Uh, TV people came in and spent some time around the car. But it was a piece of art. Banjo stuff was the cut above everything else. And, of course, the Bush paint job was kind of unique. 1981. Big race. You're you're down there. You're racing at uh, at Hickory Motor Speedway. Hickory's got a 200-lapper national event. All the, all the names you read about in that. Mm-hmm. 75 cent stock car racing magazine are there mm-hmm. and are qualifying the top five 
You're you're brand new to time trialing. Never time trialed and you're, before that weekend. You're top five out of how many cars? Doesn't matter, uh, really. Probably between twenty five and thirty. Yeah, big names. You know, who are you racing with at this point? Because well, there's Tommy Houston, Bosco Lowe, Bob Presley, uh, national events. So probably Mike Paul. Just people. Whoever was racing in the national deal at mm. that time for the championship had to be there. Sam R. Jack Sam Ingram. R., yeah. I think Morgan Shepard. Morgan Harry. Mm. Dale Jarrett, probably the only one that wasn't there for that race that I had some epic battles with later on was Jack Ingram because he was on his infamous Goodyear tire deal. And I think the track promoter had a blowout with Goodyear and they were on McQuarrie's. So what was that deal that he had with Goodyear? Free tires forever. When Firestone had come on years ago, he was one of the few that didn't defect for free product. He stuck mm. it out with Goodyear, so they stayed loyal to him forever. So you qualify fifth in this race. And with 20 to go, Bosco Lowe and, and, and uh, running on the bottom and Houston's on the top, and Houston's always up against the wall, and Bosco's in the middle of the racetrack, and I've told this story a hundred times. I run him down, mm-hmm. and I've got a shot at winning this thing. And I tried to pass them both on the bottom coming out of four, and it just wasn't going to happen. I did about five twirls down the straightaway, and ended up going straight and still finishing in the top five. That's when the promoter thought it was insane that this no-name Yankee showed up and almost won the race, and he sweetened the pot for me to stay another week. Free tires, show money, and a sweet at the local holiday uh, days in. You thought that Bob Bear was rolling out the red yeah, carpet. This I, is different. When I tell everybody yeah. I called when I when I race when I got out of there I called home and told everybody I just found race car heaven and I wasn't coming back. <laughs> yeah. So the next week is the Bob Presley story. I'm in the back room at Banjo's and he comes walking out with Leo Jackson. You know that name. Mm-hmm. Car owner. Skull bandit owner. Yeah. By then Bob's son Charlie Presley who was a chassis expert at that time leaves Bob and comes to work for me thinking I had all kinds of money at the time Bosco and, and Leo come around the corner and he said well what are you going to do this week and he said I'm going to go I'm going to go back to Hickory and he says you are and I says yeah and he said put a pair of 600s under the front a pair of 200s under the rear a one inch sway bar and weigh it up 50-50 and go win the race and walks off Charlie Presley said this or Leo Banjo Matthews oh okay we're all standing there hmm. so we do it Go. I got I got in some speedy dry qualifying, so I was back eight at the ninth. 150 lapper. Finally get to Bob, who's leading. For those that don't know Bob Presley, <laughs> can you articulate how big Bob Presley is to that community at that oh. time? He just probably, he's won four or 500 races, and he was probably the meanest, toughest short track driver that anybody would ever run against. Mm-hmm. If you hit him by accident, he was going to hit you twice to make sure you didn't make that mistake again. Has that reputation of, you're not going to mess with me because I'm going to mess with you back. That was Bob, and it actually it made sure Bob, it went straight to Robert from there. At that point, he's in trouble. He's a little loose, and he's giving everybody a break job. But because it's Bob Presley, they're thrilled. Yeah, the crowd loves him. it. Yeah. But I'm not that smart. <laughs> I'm, you know, my DNA is from Unity, so I just, right. obviously, I jacked him up and about the time he gassed up and he went around in a circle. And what, do you remember what the crowd did at this they point? They went crazy. And you won they that knew race? what was coming. I didn't. Oh, okay. They were a lot smarter than I was. So what happened? Well, they put him to the rear 
left me on the front. We're going around another yellow, and I hear somebody coming, and it, it sounds like the motor's turning 10,000 RPMs, and obviously I know who that is. Yep. And he runs into my right rear and goes off of both of my right side tires, and he gets up on the side of his car, and it rolls up on the side and bounces back down on the tires. Wow. And they finally get him back to the rear of the lineup, and we finish the race, and we win it. I'd never stood in victory lane with anybody like that. You know, you stand on the straightaway with the trophy queen and the presentation. He's still on the racetrack coming around the track to make a swipe at me. Anyways, you, as, was, as a human being, not as a race car. Yeah. yeah. I tell people spinning Bob out to win that race was the gift that never stopped giving because it went on forever. Wow. So uh, you get out of the race car and you still have the long hair. Oh, and yeah. you're known as the as the the northern guy. If there's a, a race car announcer that is worth his salt, he's playing all of this up. Oh, yeah. And the crowd erupts. It went crazy. It just probably a lot of different reasons. Somebody new showed up and was successful and doing something like that to Bob. And my intention weren't to gain notoriety for spinning Bob Presley out, believe me. Mm. But it certainly had value. And the fans, just the kids and the young people, it just went crazy. I think by the third week, I they were coming up to the fence, something they hadn't done before. And I, I don't want maybe do it. I sat it down by the first corner and just went the whole length of the pit road signing autographs before the night even started. You know, mm. you like it, the rock star. It was, but it started a fad. I can remember Dennis Setzer doing it. And the next week, we came back and. And Bob beat us. We ran second. And then we came back and won the next two or three in a row against, like, Morgan Shepard. Morgan and I went about 70 laps one night side by side. He was in the seven car of Whitaker's. Tommy Houston and I had one night, like, 50 laps. And then we had a, they had a deal there every year they called the King of the Hill deal. Bob Presley, Tommy Houston, and John Settlemeyer. I don't know if you know that name, but he's big. He's like a six-time champion. So they throw me in. I think they threw me in for bait because yeah. those guys had a lot of experience Here's there. the chum. And we ended up winning that deal. Wow. And then, I don't know, we won four or five of the first six races we were in. Then the next race we're leading, 100 lapper with 19 to go, and somebody blew a motor in front of us, and the yellow didn't come out in time and destroyed the thing. Tell me what it was like to race against drivers in the South as opposed to the drivers you were racing in the North. Was there a different mentality down there than there was up here? A little bit. Going back to the working and racing difference, mm -hmm. part of the reason Bob was upset other than he just didn't like it and it made him look bad is I took food off the table. Your point about we worked up here and raced, well, they worked all week on their race cars. That was their job. The weekend was payday and how you did. So I took food off the table. Hmm. That didn't help at all. Yeah. <laughs> but we were a lot rougher up here at times. Hmm. A lot rougher. Well, probably because it was a, it was a hobby more. Than, probably. You know. doesn't mean they weren't rough down there and didn't go after you. But how they did, you know, it's a Dave Marcus theory. I've got to finish the race to get paid. There were people that were rough and aggressive but smart enough not to jeopardize probably the opportunity to finish the race and make money that will do it for stage number one in stage two pete goes south again but things have changed everything changed the quality i shouldn't say the quality of driver the type of drivers changed it was completely different for a while people not staying around moving up you can't blame them for moving up but it did hmm. change the consistency and it hurt the car counts 
people like Stan Meserve, Ralph Nason, and Mike Rowe kept it consistent, kept it relevant, because they, they had extended successful careers. Remember to rate and review. Give us a five-star, makes us look good, and gets us higher in the pecking order so more people can hear this and we can spread the message. My name's Andy Austin. Greatly appreciate you tuning in, and we'll catch you next time for another edition of the Open Trailer Podcast. Open Trailer Podcast.